one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI powered all star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Hello and welcome to another Arsecast Extra as always with James from Gunner Blog. James, good Sunday morning to you. Good Sunday morning to you too, Andrew. How are you today? I'm all right. I, I feel like Sunday morning I should have, you know, like donuts or pastries or mm. something like that. You know, it's kind of like your Sunday treat, but I haven't been out of the house yet. So I don't have any of those things and I'm feeling a little disappointed by that. Apart from that, I'm good though. How are you? I'm good, thanks. I'm good. Um, I can't. I haven't got any pastries to supply you with. I apologise. Digital pastries. If you're listening to this now, stop what you're doing. Go and get a pastry. Go and get some pastries. Get a nice... Like, if I could give you the pastry of your choice right now, what would you have? I'd have, a, a, I think, a pano raisin. A pano raisin? Yeah. Is that like... Raisin. Is that like it's bread with raisins. with raisins in it? Right. What about you? I think I'd like a good custard slice. Mmm. Mm. Messy, but delicious. That's what I think I'd like. A bit like That's the uh, Moises Caicedo situation. Messy, but potentially delicious. <laughs> it's definitely messy. I'll give you that one. Yeah, no doubt uh, we'll talk about that, I'm sure. No doubt, because obviously we're ostensibly here to talk about Arsenal's FA Cup tie with Manchester City, but it somehow feels like uh, what remains of the transfer window might sort of pertain more to the remainder of our season. Yes. Well, I mean, we're out of the FA Cup. That's, we're out of the FA we Cup. Are, yeah, we're completely out. Um, and I suppose we should talk about that and we should talk about the game. Um, so let's let's do that before we get headlong into the transfer window madness, which um, mm. I'm sure people are are going to be interested in. So we went to Manchester City on Friday night, lost 1-0. There was a little bit of a worry about Thomas Partey and an injury, obviously, which is, uh, you know, a bit scary. I've seen some reports 
you know, that the injury is not severe or anything like that. But this is sort of, it's like a transfer with me. I need to see Thomas Partey on the official Arsenal website, holding up himself, (laughs) holding up a picture of himself saying, I'm fine, something like that. Yeah, well, exactly. There's no certainty. I've heard the same um, information that the early indications are good Mm. for Thomas. But early indications aren't enough for me at this point in time. I want a clean bill of health. I I give him another medical, I say. Fair, yeah, exactly. Like run him through the whole lot of it, you know? Uh, Early indications, we need like late indications. We need to be 100% sure on this. Yeah. But fingers crossed, fingers crossed. That said, I have no idea what I was going to ask you. Okay, we went out. We went out. Oh, in the FA Cup. Sorry, I thought you were talking about a night out on the on the. Oh, channel. sorry. So yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, yeah. Sorry, we went out and we're very hungover, and that's why we can't uh, do the podcast. It's a little. There is a little truth to that. I have to say, on a, on a Sunday morning, it takes a while for the brain to to heat up a bit. You know, warm mm. up and get the get the what are the what are the things called words the words out. That's yeah. it. So look, we went to Manchester City. We picked a team. What did you think of the team that we picked? Uh, it was a little bit weaker than I imagined it might be. Um, I won't say I was too sad about that, but I thought that Arteta would go stronger than he did. Where did you think he would go stronger? Because I kind of agree with you, and I thought really where he would go stronger was at the back. I didn't think Rob Holding would start, and I didn't think Matt Turner would start. I thought he would keep the spine of the team as as strong as possible and make changes in in wide areas, which he did to an extent. But um, the absence of Emil Smith Rowe, I guess, was a was a little bit of a blow because he would have looked at this game and thought, "Yes, I'll get some minutes here," and I'm sure Mikel mm-hmm. Arteta thought the same. But he wasn't available, so he did start Trossard. But I mean, is that where you thought he would be? Stronger, or did you think, for example, Martin Odegaard might start? Yeah, that was one I thought might play Odegaard just because he's kind of the captain in some respects, you know, the emblem of the team, so important to mm. how we play. Um, I thought he might start. I, I, I kind of thought Trossard will start. Tommy Asu obviously had come on against United and done really well and mm. arguably deserved to start. I thought maybe Tierney. Uh, for Zinchenko, I kind of thought that might be it. Um, so yeah, to see holding in was quite a big surprise. I was relatively surprised to see Vieira play, even though I know he's played a lot of these cup games. Um, but in fairness to Arteta, you know, we we sort of continually say, oh, he, he, you know, he takes the cup competitions very seriously. He doesn't heavily rotate or heavily rest. He, he did rotate pretty heavily for the Carabao game against Brighton and he made six changes for mm. this one. So I do think that sort of contrary to some of our expectations, he is prioritising here. I think that's true. And we'll probably come to that a bit later on in, in the discussion because it it was a difficult enough balancing act because there are all sorts of, you know, um, theories on what we should do like sack it off because you know we're in the title race and we don't need the distraction of the FA Cup but you don't want to get battered if you go to Manchester City a couple of weeks before you play them in the in the Premier League mm-hmm. 
I mean, City made some changes, but like you look at the side and it's not really, I mean, City was a much relatively stronger side uh, in comparison to ours, if you like. So I think yeah, we we I, were I weaker I, and City were different, but still pretty strong, you know, when you look at that lineup. I think uh, I read Sam Lee, who covers City for Athletic, saying that on form, this was arguably their strongest team. And uh, right. it was kind of the team, I'll tell uh, not as a pep trusts most at this point in time. Now that may mean there are some bigger names who, you know, you might expect to be in there, mm. but in terms of how they're playing and Pep's faith in them at this particular point, um, this was a very, very strong 11. I think the only obvious exception would be maybe a goalkeeper, Yeah, but uh, you know, the guy who came in for city, I've actually forgotten his name briefly. Ortega, um, is it? Ortega is a very, very, very capable deputy indeed. Uh, and I thought it was good on the night. Yeah, I think that was, you know, that was true of both, um, if you want to call them number two goalkeepers. I thought Matt Turner yeah. um, played really well. I, there was a, a couple of moments early on where I was, I have to admit, I was a bit scared. Mm-hmm. Where what he does with the ball has improved a lot from where we saw him first. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But where I get a little bit concerned is sometimes it just takes him a a little bit longer to get set than it does Aaron Ramsdale, if that makes sense. So he can look a little uh, harried, if you like, at times. But uh, after those opening few minutes, I thought he, he played really well, was decisive in his box, his distribution was good. Um, you know, he got involved, swept up a couple of times when he when he really needed to, and and that early mistake from Rob Holding, which again I was slightly worried that that might set the tone for what was going to happen up that end of the pitch. Uh, Turner was there to to bail him out. Um, so I think you know if we're going to give the city goalkeeper some props, I think Matt Turner definitely deserves them as well. Oh, a hundred percent. I thought he had a really good night. Um, Deserved to play, I think, given what he'd done in the Europa League group stage and having a pretty decent World Cup. Mm. Um, I agree his technique on the ball is not as easy on the eye, shall we say? Like, it, you know, he looks yeah. a bit less smooth or can look a bit more hurried than Aaron Ramsdale. But you've got to remember, he's playing out from the back, not against anybody uh, at the Etihad, but against Manchester City, um, who mm. are a very po- positionally intelligent team with... A coordinated press, you know. I think when we have our first choice players playing out from the back against City, we'll probably see some nervy, scary moments for us as fans. Sure. Um, so I think he did very well in that respect. His positioning was really good. His handling was good. No chance on the goal. Uh, it was a really good night for him. Mm. I agree with you on that. But after those early few scary, slightly scary moments, anyway, um, I thought we settled into the game really well i thought of the two sides in the first half we were the better we were the better team or we had the you know better chances or certainly more chances i know that that there was one that holland put over the bar but it was kind of lucky you know in that it it deflected i think tierney miscued a clearance and it sort of broke into his path and gabriel did just enough to to put him off but when you look at the chances we had the keeper had to make a good save from tommy asu the keeper had to make a good save from Trossard. Uh, Trossard set up a good chance for Eddie and Keddie at the near post, which he couldn't quite deflect, um, mm-hmm. you know, inside the post because of the way he was moving across the ball. 
And, you know, we've gone to Man City with a full-strength team and found it very difficult to play any, if um, much if any, of the game in, in their half. And I thought the fact that this very weakened team went there and did that in the first half was really encouraging. It was. And I, I remember when the clock ticked past 35 minutes, I was thinking, oh, this is going pretty well. And I had the horrible flashback of the league fixture last season where at that point we were 2-0 down and a man down as well mm. and thought you know with a heavily rotated team we come in here and arguably I think having the better of the first half I think Arsenal certainly had the better chances in the first half and if that Tomiyasu uh, strike is you know a yard away from the goalkeeper I don't think he's getting there mm. and uh, similarly the Trossard effort was a pretty decent one the Nketiah one you mentioned too um I think Arsenal largely acquitted themselves really well in this game. I mm. will say that in this first half, rather, um, I will say that City always posed a threat, and that was because of the the running battle, uh, which, which was in literal sense often a running battle between Erling Haaland and Rob Holding. And I was yeah. curious as to what you made of that particular duel because Erling Haaland was pretty deliberate about it. He didn't play in Gabriel's channel at all. No. And he, he stuck to holding um, and tried to exploit that as far as, as he possibly could. Yeah, I mean, th I think that was pretty obvious. Um, I mean, it's... I have a lot more... Sympathy is not quite the right word, but I understand Rob Holding's performance in this game because I saw people draw parallels to the Tottenham game last season, right? Where he had that in inverted commas, running battle with, with Son. Mm. But on that occasion, I feel like he got suckered into something that he should have been well able to cope with. You know, Son is quick and he's fast, but at the same time, um, you know, he's he shouldn't give you that m uh, many problems on a, on a physical basis, whereas Holland is six foot five, fast, really strong, so I can kind of understand why it looked difficult for Rob Holding because, well, you know, it's difficult when you're playing against a guy who's six foot five and is trying to use every bit of that physical strength that he has to gain an advantage. So it was quite interesting to watch. I was a little bit surprised that it took him as long as it did to get the yellow card. <laughs> yeah. Um, the 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 incident where. He sort of clattered Haaland in the back of the head with an arm. Like, I don't think it was like deliberate, deliberate. I was a little bit surprised he didn't get a booking for that. And I was worried that like, uh oh, he might have made him angry here. But the next thing Haaland did was just like pass the ball straight out of play for an Arsenal throw with no City player anywhere near the pass that he was trying to make. So maybe, you know, concussed him a little bit or, or rattled him a little bit. But, you know, I, I think we saw last week when a player was not at his best and on a yellow card at halftime. Mikel Arteta made a big decision by taking off Ben White, who's been one of our most consistent players. So I wasn't in the least bit surprised that Rob Holding came off at the break, given the the yellow card. I think if he hadn't had the yellow card, he'd have stayed on. Oh, he was the time bomb for sure. And, mm. you know, we saw Arteta make the change against United. Probably, you know, you mentioned that Spurs game last season. Uh, I can't remember what sort of options we had on the bench, but if he'd had the kind of options he has now, he might have made the change then too, because 
holding was a time bomb in that game as well. I, he, I he would have had to make that call very quickly in the in the Spurs game, though, wouldn't he? Because yeah. it was like ten That's minutes. That's true. He got a yellow card within yeah. half an hour. Yeah. Or something. Um. I I didn't hate what Rob Holding did. I have to say, like I don't, I didn't come away from it thinking, oh, we must play Rob Holding in the two Man City league games. But as someone who you know was in a battle with someone who w- was quicker, stronger, um, technically better, I think there was almost an acceptance of like, well, I probably can't win this fight, but I can at least make it a scrap. Yeah, um, I agree. Yeah, yeah. And and I, I <laughs> as someone who's played football with a lot of people who are, are more gifted than me, I understand that, um, <laughs> and I empathised with it. And uh, yeah, I, I think it was. Um, I think he was in a very difficult spot, and Harlan was making life very hard for him. And he did what he could to stay in that fight. Yeah. Um, and and I think that there was that you know. I sort of admire the, the gutsiness of it, if not necessarily the quality. Um, but I think Mick Arteta definitely did him sure. a, a favour thrown in the towel at oh, time. Yeah, big time. Um, and I think the other thing, as much as you might admire the the fight in Rob Holding, when William Saliba came on, it was different. You know, there mm. was more... Um, it, it wasn't a battle between him and Holland. Because I think Holland recognized that, okay, if I go um, toe-to-toe with this guy, it's going to be very different than going toe-to-toe with, with Rob Holding, you know? Yeah, um, I, I thought it was really interesting, actually. Like, the two changes Arsenal made at half time for me, really changed the nature of the game because Saliba came on for Holding um, and then Partey obviously had the rib problem that we mentioned earlier and he came off for Laconga. And in the first half, I feel like Arsenal had coped pretty well in midfield, but the threat was these longer, direct passes to Haaland in a one-on-one duel against Holding. Mm. Whereas in the second half, we didn't really see them trying to release Haaland early against Saliba. Saliba marshaled him way better. But I do think Arsenal slightly lost control of that territory 30, 40 yards from their goal, where Partey had been. Um and in a funny way, that sort of suited City better to have possession in our half rather than, you know, looking for these direct attacks. The main thing I noticed yeah. when Saliba came on, like, obviously, yes, he's a more assured defender. But actually, I do think his ability on the ball and his passing ability under pressure was, you know, a long way ahead of Rob Holden. Yes. And... I think this game was one where, yeah, okay, we saw some of the defensive deficiencies in, in holding and how he had to handle Haaland. But I thought it was sort of more interesting to see how much our passing game out from the back has evolved that holding, to me at least, looked quite far off it, it at this point in time. It's a bit it's a bit Petr Cech to... Burned Leno, if that makes sense. Do you remember the? Yes. Not, yeah. You know, I and look, Rob Holding's a you know good pro and a big kind of presence in the dressing room. I think he's he's one of those guys. But you know, if we're talking, for example, or have talked um, about the team evolving in ways which kind of leave players behind, and and that discussion has been applied, let's say, 
to someone like Kieran Tierney to an extent, right? Because of the way Alexander Zinchenko plays that left-back role. Mm. I don't think it's unfair to say that it also applies to Rob Holding when you've got people like Ben White and William Saliba who can play that right centre-back role but do it with an assurance and a quality on the ball that, that with all due respect to him, he, he doesn't have and he's not ever going to have. So it's not a, a, a shame or, or a criticism to say that the team is evolving in a positive way. There are always going to be consequences and casualties of that. And I think, you know, you could see, like you mentioned and, and like we said about the, the difference between Saliba and, and holding from the first half to the second half, that that is very much in play here. Absolutely, yeah, and it, and it's it's, I guess it's impressive how quickly it happens. You know, you mentioned Leno. I remember us all thinking Leno on the ball was a big upgrade on Czech, and then mm. we go and sign Ramsdale, and it kicks on again. And and there was a time when holding, you know, you looked at our collection of defenders and thought, yeah, he's steady on the ball, he's all right. But we have just moved forward beyond that, mm. and um, I thought this was a really encouraging forty-five minutes from. Saliba and Gabriel as a pairing uh, because you could see Haaland having sort of effectively picked on holding for that first 45 minutes, mm. you know, really targeted him and tried to make that a one-on-one duel. You're up against Gabriel and Saliba. I mean, it's between the devil and the deep blue sea, isn't it? You don't want to be up against either of those two yeah. in a one-on-one battle. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Nevertheless, City did get the goal in the yeah. in the second half. Um there was, I think we had a chance not long before the goal. Was it the one where Inketia headed uh, one header against uh, whichever centre half it was, and it fell for Vieira, and he volleyed wide from from just outside the box? Yes, so we, that was about a few minutes before the goal. Yeah. So look, it's um, it's Nathan Ake with the goal. What 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 do you make of? of how we conceded that goal because, you know, we can pick the bones out of it. There was a long shot, I think, from uh, Alvarez, which hit the post. City kept it alive. And, like, I, I have to say, I wasn't expecting Nathan Ake to be the guy to uh, stroll into the box and, and just curl one in the, the bottom corner. It was a nice finish, I think. But um, I suppose people will be people will be looking for us to say, well, how did that happen? Why did that happen? Which Arsenal players could have done better in that regard? I think so, yeah. And Mikel Arteta um, seemed very cross about it after mm. the game. Uh, it, it, he talked I mean, about not tracking runners, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. I, I, and I think I'm, I'm watching it back now. Um, <sighs> Alvarez has a lot of space to have the shot from range. I think if we're, if we're being honest, Bukai Saka probably switches off uh, in terms of knowing where Nathan Ake is mm. uh, at any point in time. Um and yeah, it was a little bit easy for them to sort of find Ake in that much space in the box. Good finish, to be fair. Uh, nothing Turner can do, really. No. That's rolled right into the corner. I mean, it's one of those where it's like Sake gets a bit drawn to the ball um, and that leaves Ake in the space. And I've seen people talking about Lukonga, who sort of, looking on from the edge of the box and maybe a more defensively aware player would have, you know, moved into that space to try and fill the space. Um, 
but nobody yeah, does it's anything not particularly for Lokonga because yeah. he has got uh, I think it's Gundogan. Gundogan is outside the box there. Yeah, yeah, that he's sort of trying to keep the distance from to close down if needs be. Um, to be honest, I actually think Saka has switched off there a bit, and you know he's sort of the golden child. Doesn't take a lot of criticism, but I think he's let a runner move off him there a bit too easily. Yeah, um, and he would probably admit as much. So. Yeah, listen, they they got their goal. It slightly had been coming. City were better in the second half. They had more control in that midfield area. Like I say, we got, you know, our, our team got stronger in some respects, but weaker in others. Mm. I think this match showed how important Thomas Partey can be for us in these big games. Um, but, you know, there, there were moments after that where we threatened to get an equaliser. Maybe threatened is the right word because I know there were plenty of fans <laughs> who didn't want to replay. I did see, uh, oh man, did, did I open that up and do we have a question about it? Um, it's from Arse Thoughts, who's at underscore Arse Thoughts. And he said, goodly morning. For the first time in living memory, I was willing Arsenal not to get an equaliser. Can you also admit to this? And before we get into that, like just to mention that we did make some changes. Martinelli and Zinchenko came on. There was one brilliant pass from Granit Xhaka, which almost found Nketi at the back post, but it was yeah. superb defending. I think it was Laporte who got there. Yeah. Really, really good defending. Martinelli was threatening down the left-hand side. He roasted a, you know, his way into the box a couple of times, just didn't quite get the, the break of the ball. There was one where it just sort of hit a player and, and rolled beautifully back for the goalkeeper. Another day that could have just you know, gone to an Arsenal man in the box. So it wasn't as if we, we gave up per se, but as we got to about 85 minutes and I considered the implications of an equalizer, I have to say that I, you know, it's not that I was actively against it, but when it didn't happen, the idea of not having to play a replay against Manchester City the week before we play them in the Premier League, you know, whatever about the vagaries of the fixture list or, or the way the cup competition can throw you up against the team that you're playing um, in the league not too long afterwards, to have a replay, I think that was basically the last thing anybody wanted. I think so. And, you know, without that, we get a full week between uh, the Everton game and the Brentford game. Mm. I think, yeah, you, you don't want to have matches against City too often uh, even if this maybe wasn't as intense as we might have thought it might be um yeah it, it, i mean i would have liked arsenal to win and had arsenal scored an equalizer at city i would have celebrated it and i'd probably be sat here saying you know we went there with six changes and we drew and you know it shows what we can do there in the league we can go on and do even more but in the cold light of day i'm not too sad about the outcome yeah there are there are defeats which are really hard to take and there are other defeats which are much easier to take and this is a saying I, I want Arsenal to lose of course not uh, I always want Arsenal to win but I think when you when you examine the um, you know the context in a serious way it's one of those where you go look um, this is the sort of defeat that I can live with because of what we've done to this point in the season and because of where we are and because of how we've played and, and what we've got at stake. Um, you know, it's not picking and choosing, but I did think there was something quite telling. We, we spoke about this on WhatsApp on, on Friday night when he made his last substitution and it was Martin o Odegaard coming on for Bukayo Saka. Mm -hmm. 
I think if Mikel Arteta was deadly, deadly, deadly serious about winning that game, even though Saka had probably his quietest performance of the season, I think you leave him on, you take Fabio Vieira off for Martin Odegaard. You know what I mean? I think there was just something, an element of self-preservation perhaps because he'd taken a kick not long before that as well. And maybe they were a bit worried about, well, if we've lost party, we definitely can't um, lose Saka. So I think maybe there was an element of that in the substitution. But I think it also said something about the way Mikel Arteta was assessing the implications of an Arsenal goal in this game. Yeah. If it's win or bust, do or die, then I don't think he takes Saka off after 74 minutes. Yeah. But equally, if it's win or bust, do or die, I don't think he leaves Martin Odegaard on the bench. I don't think he yeah. starts Rob Holding in that scenario. Um, you know, Arteta showed us where his priorities lie. And I feel okay with that because they lie in the same place as me. But other fans may vary. Um, I doubt many fans will vary too much from that, though. I think everyone's aware of the opportunity. Yeah. And and can I just say, it's nice to hear a bit of sportsmanship. Having beaten us in the fourth round, I honestly wish City all the luck and I hope they get all the way to the final. <laughs> <laughs> Hand on heart, I can genuinely say that. Oh, uh, I agree with you. Uh, do you know what? I loved the bit on the ITV coverage where they were talking about the FA Cup and the presenter said, well, you know, it was an FA Cup win some years ago that propelled Manchester City into being the, the force they are today. I was thinking it was the FA Cup, was it? Winning the FA Cup did that, not the not the billions of pounds that they The prize spent. money for the FA Cup must be better than it's I thought. Fucking huge. <laughs> Jesus. Um, several billion pounds. Um, I, yeah, maybe we should focus more on it. Maybe. I, uh, yeah, I, I, that's kind of absurd. But listen, I, I thought um, there were positives on the night. Turner was good. I thought, you know, Saliba and Gabrielle looked good. I, I, I'm not... Um, counting any chickens I think Haaland's always a threat whatever happens we didn't talk about him too much but I thought Leandro Trossard had a good game looks to be a pretty seamless fit really for he the way does yeah he he just even Roy Keane said it didn't he like the gear looks good in him he looks like an Arsenal player he his gait like a- uh, and the way he dribbles in field not an, a, a player who uh, is held in the highest esteem anymore at Emirates Stadium, but reminded me a little bit of Sami Nasri and some of the positions he took up sure. you know, for that left-hand side. But yeah, it, it, it just feels like, oh, we've bought a guy and he's a, a grown-up and he knows how to play in England yeah. and he is ready. Yeah. And that's exactly what we needed, I suppose. I think, I think so. And even though we lost, you know, there are ways to lose as well. There are ways of losing games that can be really damaging. That yeah, can this hurt was you. Not that. This was definitely not that. And I also think that in the cold light of day, after the disappointment of losing, Mikel Arteta will look at the performance, look at how tight the game was and how close the game was, and see that he made six changes and Man City basically played their first team and look you can you can also add the caveat that maybe they played this game like it was a cup game as well right um yes absolutely. you know that maybe their priority is not necessarily the cup either so they weren't going hell for leather you could you could apply that to them however what i think is abundantly clear right now is that the gap 
between these two teams, which not that long ago was it last was it last season's game where we lost five nil away? It was early in the season. Was that that game? Yeah, it was. That was the one I mentioned to yeah. down after half an hour. Yeah. So you know, when you think back to that game, it felt a bit like that gap was so big it was going to take half an eternity to close it. And I think Mikel Arteta, I think the players as well, importantly, will have come away from that game and thought, you know what? City have been our our bet noir, if you like. They've been such a difficult team to play against. They've caused us so many problems. They've, you know, they've beaten us with ease time and time again. I don't think they will look at that City team and find anything to be intimidated about or to be scared about when we play them in the league. Because the gap the gap has closed. And I'm not saying we're as good as they are. We've still got to prove it. You know, you've got to be able to do it as consistently as they do. They have a deeper squad than us. I think they have a better squad than us. But in terms of what we produced on the pitch the other night, there is no reason why Arsenal going into the league game in a couple of weeks' time should not be thinking, we can win this game. Because if we can go there and do that with six changes, when we've got them at home, when we're, fingers crossed, full strength, Let's fucking have a real go at these because the 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 aura of invincibility is the wrong word, but you know that kind of that that intimidation that you have when you play a team that's just so much better than you that should be gone. That's gone, I think. I think that's true. And Mikel Arteta, you know, when speaking to the press, when speaking to his own players, repeatedly refers to Manchester City as the best team in the world. Yeah. So there is an enormous amount of respect there. Um, but there's nothing to fear. There's nothing to fear. Arsenal, if they can get their best team, if they can get the team we've seen in recent weeks on the pitch mm-hmm. against Man City on February 15th at the Emirates Stadium under the lights, they've got every chance. Mm. Uh, and if they can win that game, it could have a huge impact in the title race. So... I think there's a lot to be encouraged by. Um, a few lessons to be learned, which is no bad thing in mm-hmm. terms of you know, how we handle the midfield space, how we deal with Haaland. I think this shows you that any game against Man City can be decided by the finest margins. I think it shows you as well how when they get in front, they can just absolutely kill it. Like, Yeah, they did the 300,000 passes thing for a while. Oh, they? man. It's like... The lights go out and everyone falls asleep mm. when they get in front. Um, it's and and to be fair to Arsenal, principally through Gabriel Martinelli, they kind of disturbed that and mm-hmm. interrupted that and created some jeopardy late on. But uh, yeah, we saw some indication of like you know what they can be capable of in that scenario. First goal is massive in these games. Yeah. Um, but Arsenal very nearly got it. And on another night, this could have been Arsenal's night. But we didn't need it to be Arsenal's night. February 15th. That's the one, Arsenal's yeah. Night. That's the one. Um, that's the really important one. And look, I love the FA Cup as much as anybody. I really do. But like, I would I would have traded you um, whatever you liked. You know, i take a defeat in the Cup for a win in the league. If, if uh, I know it doesn't work like that, but you know. Um, that really is the one I think that is going to be the marker for uh, for this season um, and where we might 
where we might end up. But, you know, we lost, but I think there are, there are plenty of things to be encouraged about. Um, so, I mean, is there anything else on the game before we turn our attention to off-field matters? No, I don't think so. I think we've kind of... Smithrow, a bit of a worry. Smithrow, yeah. Well, I've got a question about that. So maybe we'll do that in uh, part two. In part um, two. Will we... I, I, Go I'll on, tell sorry. you this, though. Yeah? At the start, when we were talking about pastries, I abs- as I said the words pan raisin, I absentmindedly typed them into Google. <laughs> and for the entire duration of part one, I've been looking at the Google image search page for Pano Reza okay. and just staring at it. So if I've sounded distracted at any point, that's why. Oh, they look, uh, they're sort of like um, a bit like a Danish pastry almost. Yeah, they're a swirl based. Swirly pastry. thing, yeah. I didn't, it, but it was kind of incredible. Like I did that in the moment when we were talking about it. And then halfway through part one, I just realized. I've been staring at these pages for twenty minutes. <laughs> it's like when you, th- it's like when you think something and then you type it. You know that way. Yeah, I'm yeah. on a radical new diet where I just look at pictures of food. Um, I thought actually, to be honest, it might have the opposite effect. I might have to go and buy one after this. Yeah, I don't I don't tend to see those very often here. Pan right. Mm. May I don't know. We're we're closer to France, Andrew here. You know, oh, that's it. These things that's are it. coming just, across on the Eurostar all the time. Exactly. You just have to Boxes get a train. A train, yeah. Um, do you want to save the Caicedo thing for part two? Should we yeah, do it that like we've way? Yeah, we've got to give people something to come back for. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Something to stick around for. That's true. That's true. Your marketing skills are. Um, I can't get charts. away from it, you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things they teach us at the oh, Athletic. All right. Okay. Well, look. After your content. We, we've got loads of questions about um, loads of stuff, but obviously the the imminent closure of the transfer window and the uh, Moises Caicedo shenanigans that have been going on all weekend uh, are going to be front and center in that. So we'll do that then. We'll uh, take a well, little also, break. Also, Andrew, Go on. that's what all our questions are about. So if we don't do that in part two, I don't know what we're going to do. But there's literally, that's all the questions. I, I think I got some more questions okay. apart, from, apart from Caicedo. But there are a lot of Caicedo questions. I believe he's trending on Twitter now in... Uh, 116 countries because of the amount of questions that we've got, which we will deal with in part two, which is coming up right after this. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. 
It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify magic, your AI powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you sent to us on Twitter, at GunnerBlog and at Arsblog, and also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member, on Patreon. Do you actually have a Caicedo question? Because I don't think I opened any because um, I thought we'd just have it as a discussion. But You didn't think we'd get this far yeah. uh, without talking about it. I don't know if I actually do, yeah. It was sort of like, how do you choose one out of the thousands? Um should we find one? Let's find one. A nice yeah. thing to do. You know, we could just talk about it, but then someone wouldn't get their question read out. Um, let's have a look. Uh, I'm trying to go in my mentions. Actually, where's my mentions here? Um, I mean, this is top class. Top class stuff here. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Uh, Lebanese Guna, this isn't even a question. Something doesn't smell right about the Caicedo deal. I'd let it go. Or Earwig, Alan Yeo says, is it worth pushing the boat out for Caicedo? As in my opinion, it would be a far more important signing than Mudrick. He could be the player that gets us over the line. Mm. Uh, uh, we also had one from Daniel AP, who's at Sagara Daniel, who said, for players, this is a job first and foremost. Fine. But even if that's the case, Caicedo's antics feel totally off to me, especially as we've been through similar situations in the past. For the fee he would command, should this be a consideration? What are your thoughts? So, look, let's uh, deal with that in a moment. But the the situation as we know it is that Arsenal really badly want a midfielder before the end of the window. Um Mohamed Elneny could be out for the rest of the season. We do have some questions about Albert Sambi Lukonga, which we'll come to. The Thomas Partey injury, you know, like we said, gave us all the heebie-jeebies. So they made a bid for Caicedo, which Brighton rejected immediately. Uh, sorry, I should say a laughable, derisory, pathetic, mere £60 million pounds £60 million. Pounds. It's rubbish money. Who the hell would even bother responding to something like that? It's insulting to, to offer £60 million pounds for a player that cost less than £4 million pounds two years ago. I mean, we're absolute bastards for doing that. So let's just get that out there. But anyway, we made the bid. It was rejected. Um, Brighton said, no way. Caicedo has got new agents, posted a thing on Instagram, which, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but it's basically, let me go. 
please. Um, yeah. And that's kind of where we are. Do we know any more? Well, we know that he's been told to stay away from the club until after the deadline. Didn't they uh, do that with uh, the woolly lad, Kukurea? Kukurea. Yeah, I think they did. Um, or a similar course of action was taken. Brighton play Liverpool today. I think Caicedo didn't attend training on Saturday or mm. made it clear he wasn't going to be attending. And Brighton at that point said, OK, don't come back till the deadline's gone. Which I think is actually pretty smart um, from them if they really do want to keep the player because it sort of... Um, it, it takes away a lot of his cards that he can play. You know, he probably would have think would have been thinking, well, I say I won't come in on Saturday and then, I, and then I'll say I won't come in for the game and then I won't come in on Monday again. And, you know, on Tuesday I had in a transfer request and they were like, just go away. Yeah, fuck off. Yeah. Fuck off, mate. It's really interesting, this one, this, because I genuinely, like, like all Arsenal fans, uh, I'd love to see us sign a, a new midfield player. But I also have... Uh, some sympathy for Brighton's position here. And I do think the way they've uh, handled it has been sort of fairly commendable, yeah. to be honest. I, like, I completely understand them not wanting to sell, given yeah. that there's only two days left in the trial or three days left in the, the transfer window. And, it, you know, he's been a key part of the team and it makes finding a replacement in such a short space of time, you know, is quite difficult. And um, they've lost Trossard. They've lost been. Trossard, yeah. Um, the uh, the valuation, I mean, this was another bit of groundbreaking news that I, I discovered over the weekend, that Brighton have a valuation of a player and, and that's the price that they will sell for. I'd never heard of... <laughs> never heard Andy of... Naylor. He's such a nice guy as well. <laughs> He's the Brighton writer for The Athletic and he has... Shall we say, uh, he has angered the Arsenal fans on social media <laughs> and he knows all about it. Um, yeah. I mean, his his quote tweets uh, make for a fairly brutal reading. Right. Um, but but we're just talk, talking about Brighton. Like, you know, I, I get it from their point of view. And if a player does what Caicedo did, you know, changes agents, yeah, um, which is basically to force a move, I guess, then releases the Instagram statement. Like, if I'm Brighton, I'm not thinking, oh, you poor guy, you know, I, I will bend over backwards here to help you leave the club. You know, you've laid it out so well there in Instagram. I mean, how could we... It, it's sort of like a blunt force way to get out of the club. And if I'm Brighton, I'm thinking, well... You know, it, w it would be counterproductive anyway if I was in charge. It would not make me more minded to help facilitate a departure for a player who behaved like that. No. And I think most football fans have a sort of appropriate degree of cynicism to realise this. But I think we can be fairly confident that Moises Caicedo did not write that Instagram and Twitter statement uh without some assistance. Mm. Uh, I don't think it was like purely his volition and inspiration to be like, I know what I'll do. I'll write this in English uh, and put it online. And, and I do think that the way uh, that his representatives have gone about trying to engineer this deal could really backfire on them. You know, I think the mm. intention obviously was to sort of force Brighton's hand but I think it's equally possible and indeed at this point in time appears to be the case that it would just make Brighton all the more resolute mm. in their position. 
For sure. Um, I mean, Brighton I, signed Moises Caicedo. They didn't sign his nine siblings. So they don't no. have a responsibility to them, you know? So I does it make you... I mean, I can understand as well why he would want to make the move. I get it. But does the behavior give you any pause for thought? Like, I mean, if these are the agents... Honestly, no. Honestly, but But if these are the agents that that, um, Brighton are dealing with, they're going to be the agents that we have to deal with at some point as well. That's true. And it may be that... I guess in my head, I'm like, Arsenal is probably... uh, you know, Arsenal's about as good a move as as Casado can get at this point in time, and uh, if it gets point. to a point where he can go somewhere better five years down the line, then we'll all have done exceptionally well out of it. And mm. I, I sort of, it, it's not ideal, but I, it doesn't. Let let me be clear: it doesn't make me have any concerns about the player. Right? No, no, no. I think that's I think that's fair. All a lot of players do this, you mm. know, and um. I think I think I'm right in saying that there was, you know, a not entire when Arsenal were trying to get Aaron Ramsdale over the line, there was a point in time where he was kind of in conflict with the club, and you know, this can happen. Mm. Um, we've seen it many times before, but yeah, it's it's not uh, what's the word? It's not the most dignified way of going about things. Um, it's not exactly. Uh, Marble Hall's vintage Arsenal style. Mm -hmm. And I do think Arsenal need to be a tiny bit careful because we saw Shakhtar come out and be very mm, publicly unhappy. And I'm sure they had their reasons and blah, blah, blah with the way in which Arsenal courted Mikhailo Mudrik. Mm -hmm. And there have been other recent cases where Arsenal have very much you know, uh, how can I say, got players on side ahead of negotiations with the club. Mm -hmm. And it is sort of the nature of how football works, but there's a sort of delicate line to be trod um, in terms of sort of protecting relationships. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, you you can be a bit cheeky and speak to an agent or sometimes speak to a player, but you have to do it with a little bit of subtlety, I think, uh, so that you don't end up pissing off too many other clubs. Well, I mean, the timing of it is is obviously a, a fairly significant factor in this mm-hmm. because it's come so late in the window. I did have a question, but I can't quite find it now, so I'm very sorry. But it was along the lines of, why are we at the end of another window scrambling around for a midfielder? Is this, you know, perhaps something we could have done earlier in the window? Or is the need for a midfielder now more uh, urgent because of the potential for the injury to El Nenny? Is it well, again this, uh, a reaction to an injury, if you like? Yeah, this is my belief um, based on my information is that at the start of the window, Arsenal thought they probably wouldn't sign a central midfielder in January. Um, the decision they made in the summer, well, you know, the, the, what was in their plan in the summer prior to an El Nenny injury, shortly before the deadline, mm-hmm. was that they had 
sufficient depth to to go through the season and probably add a high caliber midfielder next summer. I think uh, on January first they felt the same, and I think two things changed. One is El Nenny got injured, and he's been injured for a little while now. He was injured before the Spurs game, yeah. so we're talking a fortnight ago, uh, and the extent of that is still not you know in the public domain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then. The other thing that changed is that Arsenal thought they were going to be spending £100 million on a player or, you know, between £70 and £100 million on a player that they ultimately did not spend. Mm. Um, So there was a lot of resource, which is available. And then I guess a third thing Mm -hmm. that changed is Arsenal beat Spurs and Man U and solidified their place at the top of the table. And if anything, I think the opportunity in terms of the Premier League, probably looks greater now than it did even on December 31st because of the way we've come through such a testing period uh, and things like the Gabriel Jesus injury. Hmm. So I think, um, I believe that that there was basically a decision of like, well, we're going to have to deal with this problem sooner or later. Obviously, you know, the the interest in Declan Rice regarding the summer was widely reported. Mm -hmm. What if we use that resource to get someone of high caliber that we really rate in now to give us that final push. And Caicedo is someone who, you know, whatever uh, Brighton fans or correspondents might think Arsenal value very highly. 60 million pounds is a lot of money. Uh, And they showed they value him highly by putting that bid in. Could we have done it earlier? Yeah. Like, you know, you could always say, well, Arsenal should have bought a midfielder last summer or Arsenal should have bought a midfielder in January, uh, you know, the first week of January. But I'm just pointing out that mm. from what I've heard, that's kind of how this came to pass, that we're in this position with a few days to go, sure. wanting to do something. And maybe, depending on how bad Elneny is, needing to do something. Yeah, I think need is possibly the right word. I did say this on the blog today, but we should probably just sign Brighton Scouts and save ourselves a load of money in the long term. Um, What that, you know, would do for us in the very short term uh, is clearly uh, not relevant, but it is going to be an interesting final couple of days then in the the transfer window. Can I ask you a question? What do you think is going to, like, you know, is going to happen with Caicedo based on what you're seeing do you do you take Brighton's position which is a very public position that he's not for sale as red not not 100% no i mean i think that's probably their public position because they don't want to sell the player but without going too much into clichés every player has his price right like, it wouldn't surprise me if Brighton just were obstinate and said, look, no, we're not going to sanction this deal. He can go in the summer and, you know, we'll deal with this situation then. Um, but, you know, you've got to take into account a player who's very publicly said he wants to leave. That makes for a difficult atmosphere 
inside a club. Uh, we know how important harmony is inside uh, a squad. So if there's an unhappy player there, that is not something that the manager will want, um, which is to not cast aspersions on Caicedo's professionalism. If he stays there, you know, I'm sure he'll do his best, etc., etc. But it's still not ideal. What also wouldn't surprise me is if Brighton use this scenario to get a bit more money out of Arsenal than Arsenal would have ideally liked to pay. Because of the need that you mentioned, because of the opportunity that we have, and because of what a player like Caicedo could bring to the team in the second half of the season, because, you know, the panic we had over Partey is obviously, um, it's not just fans who must feel that panic, right? Mm -hmm. Mikel Arteta and his coaching staff, and I'm sure everybody at the club is worried about what we'll be like without Thomas Partey, particularly if we don't have Mohamed Elneny as well. So our midfield options are pretty limited. Brighton have garnered a reputation, I think, and, you know, rightly so, deservedly so, um, without wanting to um, bring up what your uh, esteemed colleague at The Athletic said about, you know, a player having their price and that's the price that they will sell for. It's They're not unique, obviously, in that, but they've done a very good job of it in recent years. You think about the Ben White negotiations, right, where we made some offers and Brighton said, we want 50 million, and then we paid 50 million and got the player. So this could, in some way, cement Brighton's reputation in that sense, whereas if they put an actual figure on it, it's sort of being leaked, isn't it, that they want... Is it eighty million for the player? Like, I'll, I'll be honest. I haven't heard of. I haven't heard a number. Right. I, I look. I've read that somewhere. It could be nonsense. Um, who knows? Uh, it feels. It feels plausible, doesn't it? But, it I mean, but yeah, it feels like Brighton would sell at the right price because then they can turn around and say, "Well, look at this. We we held out for that price. If you want our players in the future, you're going to pay what we want." And we have made a massive, massive profit on this guy that we paid buttons for two years ago. So I think there's a, a situation in this where, despite publicly saying they don't want to sell, Brighton will still come out of this looking pretty good, both financially, but also as a club that is, you know, not an easy touch when it comes to negotiations. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean... Their public position seems very definite, but you have to remember Arsenal are dealing with Tony Bloom, who is literally a professional poker player. So, <laughs> you know, there, there could be some bluff happening here. Um, I think that uh, for me, it will come down to if Brighton can identify a replacement and believe it's doable in what remains of the window. I do think that could be the critical mm. factor here. Because it's interesting, you know, Brighton say, well, we're midway through a season, we're pushing for Europa League football. Listen, Europa League football is great for a football club, but I don't think it makes you as much as 80 or 90 million pounds. No. Um, I don't think, I might be wrong, but I, I think that would be such an astonishing offer that, I kind of feel they they might feel they have to take it, especially if, as I say, they can get someone in. For I sure. I mean, I, I can't sit here and tell you he's worth that. Like, that feels a huge amount of money. Well, it is. For a player of this 
For a player who we're saying is probably not in our starting eleven. <laughs> yeah, a derisory eighty million pound bid from Arsenal might yeah. just get the deal done. Yeah. Um and there'd be I think there wouldn't be much doubt in my mind that Arsenal would be overpaying, um, as we would have been overpaying mm. for Mudrick. Um but that is kind of appears to be at least the position that we find ourselves in. Um, it also feels like it might be difficult to do anything else at this point. Yeah, well, I've seen people say, what about Declan Rice, you know, and you can put a value on the qualifying for the Europa League. I think the value of West Ham staying in the Premier League is substantially higher than that. Mm. And they are 16th, one point clear of the relegation zone. He is their captain and their best player. I'm not sure there is an amount of money that you could put down now to sign Declan Rice. Because um, if there was, I'd be more comfortable with that, honestly. Like, yeah, if, I think I would too. But, I, you know, the other thing to take into account is, you know, the player, um, you know, when people talk about doing deals in January and why is it so complicated or why is it more difficult, et cetera, et cetera, you know, players will feel a, a measure of responsibility to the club that they're at, you some, know? Some, some of them, not all of them, some, of course. Some, apparently not all. Not all, but some of them will. And I think, you know, Declan yeah. Rice at West Ham, uh, look, I'm not saying he he wouldn't join if the offer was right or whatever, but at the same time, it does make it a bit more complicated for certain players. You know, if a season is going really well at your hometown club, for example, uh, like the, the guy at Real Sociedad, uh, they're having a great season and, you know, he might feel like he wants to be part of what remains of, of that season. You know what I mean? I, so, think, I think that is how he feels. Yeah. You know? Like, I, I think that's the problem in that case. Um, and I think you probably would have a similar issue with Rice. I, I doubt he would walk out on West Ham right now. Mm. Uh, I think he would feel that wasn't the right way to do it. Um, which puts Arsenal in a bit of a bind, you know, because... How long is your list of top mm. quality central midfielders you want to bring into the squad? Um, it's it's really complicated. One, well, the, the one thing I would say on Caicedo, I suppose, from an economic perspective, a little like the Mudrick deal, uh, it's probably not quite as expensive as it would look, only because, like Mudrick, he's not on a especially high salary at his current club, mm -hmm. and so. You know, normally if you sign a player for a hundred million pounds, you're thinking, well, we must be putting them on three hundred grand a week or something like that. It would not be remotely in that ballpark. Mm. So, you know, for example, a hundred million for Caicedo versus a hundred million for Rice, Rice is going to be the more expensive signing out of those two, you know. Yeah. Um but I genuinely don't know how this ends. Like I I sort of am with you in that Arsenal need to do something. I don't know how long you give it with Brighton. I don't know. You know, I, 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 there was some reports yesterday of a second bid. I'm told that's not true at this point in time. Um, I think that would only have kind of, in some respects, made the situation worse. I imagine there's a lot of dialogue that needs to happen before you can just start chucking offers in and mm. a bit of making the peace, probably. 
Um, I mean, we should have a pretty decent relationship with Brighton because of, you know, the deals we've done. The Trussard deal got done very quickly. I know those were circumstances, but the Ben yeah. White deal, you know, they tough negotiation. Brighton got what they wanted. We got what we wanted. Yeah. Um, I, I guess it's very close with Dan Ashworth. Yeah. They were at West Brom together. And, and I and, guess, you know, the, the sorry to cut across, it might just be a case of like how culpable they think Arsenal are for the players' behaviour and and all that. You know what I mean? Yeah, by the way, that thing I just said about Dan Ashworth uh, is about uh, a year out of date. He's at Newcastle. Uh, That's right. So I was wrong about that. But, um, yeah, and I do get the sense that Brighton's irritation is primarily with the players' representatives at this point in time Mm. rather than Arsenal. Um, Arsenal, let's be clear, Arsenal are entitled to put in any offer of any value for any player they want. Um, Same with Brighton, who got knocked back for um, a player uh, over the weekend as well. I was reading reports that the, uh, was it a Shakhtar Donetsk player? I can't remember. Um, but, you know, the the bid that they made for the player was not deemed acceptable. I mean, that's what happens. You know, yeah, but sometimes I, I think there's a sort of unwritten thing where if you make it clear a player is not for sale, then I feel a lot of clubs think that should be respected. Like I remember when Aston Villa came back for Emil Smith-Rowe after Arsenal had made it very clear he wasn't on the market. Hmm. Arsenal were very annoyed by that. And I imagine there may be some of that from Brighton. It's a really interesting... (laughs) It's a really interesting one because the player appears to have sort of... In any other... In many situations, you say, well, he's burnt his bridges there. But it's so... um, out of character and so obviously, I think, motivated by the representation he has that Brighton might think oh, he's a nice he, he's a nice kid Moises mm. like give it a couple of weeks he'll be fine and you know literally a week before his Instagram status he was on the Brighton website talking about how he's not letting not letting speculation affects him and he's focused on mm. Brighton and his future there so they may think as quickly as he's thrown his toys out the pram he may go and collect them all and Get back, back in the in. pram. Yeah. Get back in the pram. Yeah, exactly. Get After in the, the pram. So, I, I, yeah, it's really... I, I, I've got no idea. Okay. Well, let's just hope Arsenal have a, you know, a contingency as well. So um, Yeah, let's hope so. I feel like this is a situation where you definitely mm. need one because I think anyone who tells you they know what Brighton are going to do is probably yeah. fibbing or guessing. That's true. Listen, let me ask you this one before we move on because we did have a few questions along the same lines. And I thought it was very interesting to read, um, you know, in a number of places about how even if Arsenal were to sign Caicedo, it would not preclude or impact a, a move for Declan Rice in the summer. So Nick Sparrow, who's at Ampofo96, says, how is the club going to find the potential or fund the potential cost for Caicedo uh, uh, and Rice in the same year? Uh, is it player sales or ready cash? Well, I mean, can I say, I hope that's true. I don't know it's true, but some good journalists have written yeah. it. So I hope it's true. Um, I mean, do you think they're looking at the summer and and saying, right, realistically, this is the first summer where maybe we can actually generate a good few uh, quid by selling some players who actually have some 
some value in the market because other clubs will want them. Has to be. I mean, as well, I think Champions League revenue, the club, <laughs> you know, nothing's done till it's done, but can probably project that we might have that coming in, which is going to make a big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, what I would say is we've been spending money we don't have for quite a while. <laughs> like, we've been spending bigger money than we've been bringing in for a few years now under this ownership. Mm. So in some respects, there's just no change there. We're continuing to push on and um, invest. I guess the only difference is, yeah, can we we claw some of that back? Mm. I do think player sales, yeah. I mean, there, there are a number of players. We talked about some of them, to be honest, on the pitch against Man City, who you'd think come next season... Maybe they won't be around. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Cedric might go to Fulham. They still haven't sorted out their situation where they got two loans. So if we can get 100 million for him. Oh, easy. Then that that will help. I I, I think, um, yeah, I, I, I think, well, let's sort of lay down the gauntlet for Edu. I think we need to see that this summer. Yeah. I think we need to see some player sales, some revenue generated through uh, the evolution of the squad. It's it's time. You know, Edu had some really compelling excuses, I thought, uh, that were plausible and I think bought him some time and some credit. But by his own rhetoric, the sort of time span on those excuses is, hmm. is soon to expire. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. And there are players in the squad. I mean, I don't think we even need to really name them who you could look at and say, well, they might go, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, um, you know, two or three easily that you could say, okay, they, they're they probably going to go. Um, maybe they'll take a step sideways or a step down, whatever it might be. But there are going to be clubs interested in, in these players. Whereas we've been trying to move on players. Uh, yeah. Who, who don't necessarily look attractive to other clubs. And again, you know, not to go on about this, but we mentioned it a bit, you know, the Liverpool thing where they're selling players and you're like, well, why are they getting that much money? It's because I guess the perception of a team that's near the top of the table, the kind of players that you have that can't get in your team because you're very good is much better than players who can't get in your team when you're mid-table. So Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's there's loads of interesting examples. I do think the centre-forward one, for example, is is there room for Eddie Nketiah and Flo Balogun in the squad next season? I mean, Maybe even someone is... like Nuno Tavares as well, you know. Who's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's... But if you think of Balogun and Nketiah, what they've done this season, I mean, mm. you know, we didn't really pay anything for them. Uh, there's got to be profit to be had somewhere. I mean, okay. I, you know, I, I like them both, but... Um, Listen, speaking of players who might leave, we had a lot of questions about Albert Sambi Lukonga, who had a bit of a tricky time mm. at the Etihad. Um, Sam, who's at Ode to Saka, says, Good morning, gents. I have to say, I feel for Sambi. Being a midfielder in our Teta system is not easy. There's a reason three of our most experienced players play eight or six. Um, and he actually said, should we consider sending him to company at Burnley to get more game time and experience? Well, I don't think we can send him anywhere now because we're, no. we're desperate for a midfielder and we can't then just let a another midfielder go. Um, and I suspect that, that, 
you know, he, he was a bit frustrated at the end of the game, wasn't he? He went straight down the tunnel. Mm. Um, who knows? There's been reports of interest from Monaco. Maybe the fact that we can't let him go plays into his frustration. Wouldn't surprise me. You know, he was pretty frustrated at the end of last season. And well, yeah. We had a, been... a quick question about that, actually. One on the Discord, um, Ty112 said, do you think that the... The, the scene with Eddie and Sambi from the Amazon documentary affects the way people have seen uh, Lokonga and his actions this year. Um, and I thought this was quite an interesting one as well from John Larkin. He said, in regards to the situation with Albert Sambi Lokonga, do you think the club could have handled things any differently? It seems he's lacking any confidence at all and is half the player he was during spells from last season. So, look, he came on... I think he had a difficult few minutes initially, but then got into the game a bit. And I think actually on the ball, he's fine. Mm. I don't really have any big issue with him on the ball, but I do think he could possibly speed things up a little bit. But it's the defensive awareness, the positional awareness, I think that is more concerning. And it's a tough role. The Thomas Partey role is a tough role to play. But there was a scene, wasn't there, towards the end of the game where Martin Odegaard was quite frustrated with with Lukonga, um, either not being close enough to him or not being in the position that he expected him to be in. How do you view those aspects of his game? Because it's not like when he's th- put on in a game like this or when he's given an opportunity in a game that he isn't fully instructed and fully coached about what he needs to do in that role and where he needs to be and how he needs to play it. You know, it's not like he's being just sent out there and like, okay, see if you can figure this one out because that's not how Mikel Arteta operates, right? So he's going out there with the full knowledge of what it is he needs to do, but that defensive awareness that is my big concern about him the positional uh, play like you can learn it and you can it will come with experience but from what I've seen this season that doesn't seem to be developing in the way that you might like no I think that's fair I think everyone would suffer by comparison with Thomas Partey in terms of the job he does uh, in the Arsenal midfield. Mm-hmm. I, like, even if we spend 80 million quid on Caicedo, if Thomas Partey's injured or unavailable, I'll still be worried about that gap. Um, mm. He's been that good um, of late and is, is relatively unique in terms of his attributes that enable him to do it. Sambi, I think the point about the documentary is really interesting. Like, Tabo Matsepi asked, while there are plenty of positives from the All or Nothing documentary, do you worry that the Lukonga Eddie clip in the canteen might have ended Lukonga's Arsenal career? Fans seem to have lost patience with him and doubt his mentality. Mm. It is cited a lot. And I do think it is worth remembering that those documentaries are a snapshot. And naturally, in the same way that we might latch on to like a line from Mikel Arteta in a press conference and extrapolate a lot from it, I do think we have to be careful to not look at a 30-second exchange and make assumptions about the character of a man that we do not know. Yeah, he could have just been having a bad day. Yeah. Like... You know, a bit down or whatever. It, there's a million reasons. Yeah. Like, And it may be that he's 
a sulk and he's, you know, it may be that, but I'm just saying based on the tiny snippet of information that we have from the documentary, we can't know that. Like, Mm. you know, we've all extrapolated like who Carlos Cuesta is from his four minutes of screen time, but there's a lot we don't know. You know what I mean? He's a man who will kiss Granite Shacker's back. (laughs) His sweaty back. We don't know like what, we're given such a sliver of the full picture. And I do feel like Lukonga has suffered, certainly, in terms of his portrayal. Mm. But equally, I accept it's not like he's doing a great job on the pitch either. I I didn't love the Martin Odegaard thing. Like, I remember when Arteta came into the club, one of the first things that he said was like, I don't want to see players shouting at each other on the pitch, throwing their arms up, being mm. frustrated. And I understand, like, the it's- motivation of Odegaard, and I understand where it came from, and I love Martin Odegaard. But um, I don't know. It's complex, isn't it? Like, we accept it from a goalkeeper. If there's a defensive mistake, they scream at their players, blah, blah, blah. But I don't know about the messaging of sort of, like, having a go at one of your own players in games. Sometimes it's necessary, I guess. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I mean, again, I think this could be one where people are putting a lot more weight yeah, exactly. into it. Exactly. I might be doing than, exactly what I just uh, Yeah. You know, where it's just a moment of frustration or maybe it's, you know, two minutes earlier, Odegaard had a conversation with Lakonga to say, look, when this happens, you be here, blah, blah, blah. And then he turns around, he's not there. And it's like, yeah. ah, come on, man. Know. You know, you don't know. And I think, you know, what happens on the football pitch, uh, you know, at professional level, at any level, you know, we all have our moments. We all have our, um, you know, frustrations. Sometimes they can um, come to the come to the boil, but like it doesn't mean anything as soon as the whistle is blown. It's just like, oh, yeah, listen, you know, that happened. Um, but I think in the context of what we've seen from Lukonga, I mean, it was quite funny that someone – Apologize, I can't go back and find it now. But ju- just talking about, you know, Caicedo going to Brighton for four million pounds or whatever it was, and and someone was saying to me today, "Well, why don't we do that? Why don't we sign those players then?" And I do think Tavares and Lacanga were kind of that. Mm-hmm. They were attempts at that kind of signing, you know. But when. Lokonga has been disappointing pretty much not every time this season. And I accept it's a tough gig for him and he's not getting as many minutes as he would like. And he's coming in cold a lot and and everything else, but he hasn't really done anything to convince anyone in his performances this season. So I think that Odegaard moment was sort of viewed through that prism, if you like. Um, I mean, let me ask you this one. Uh, it comes from because we, you know, Lukonga, like you say, sort of pales in comparison to Thomas Partey. There's clearly a difference, a gap in quality between the two players, right? But Matthias, who's uh, at Goonerby underscore Matt, said, is looking for a like for like replacement for Partey, a fool's errand. Should we be focusing on a different system to use when we're with Adam? And if so, what would your system B and you know is that a consideration as well that in a game when Partey comes off and he has this very specific role I mean do you think 
you say, okay, to Lukonga, right, you go out and just play, you do, you do the party job, or do you try and tweak things a bit with the players around him to make that a little bit easier for him? I mean, I'm not trying to like get him out of jail or anything like that, but is should that be a consideration when you know that he can't really do it to the level that party can. Yeah, uh, just one one quick thing on the Congo before I, I answer that question, which I, I sort of meant to say and I forgot. I, th- I think the basic problem for him at Arsenal now is that he's done at Arsenal, and <laughs> that's a pretty fucking basic problem. Aren't yeah, it? yeah. The like, basic that, problem that is, is is that you know, with your uh, loved one here, the, ba- the he's dead. Like we That's can talk it. around it, and of yeah. course, there's always second chances, and things change in football. But right now, he knows he's done at Arsenal. The manager knows it. The fans know it. And I think, if anything's going to affect your motivation, your confidence, your performance level, it's that fact. Mm. And I imagine he's desperate to go, and he can't. That 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 is. Uh, mm. This is based on what I see. That's what I think. I, and I think that probably it ain't going to get better for him. And that's why Arsenal have to buy somebody. Mm. In terms of what they can do in the market, oh, sorry, in, in terms of the system, um, yeah, I suppose the question becomes, have you got someone else in the squad who could do that job? The first question is, have you got someone else in the squad who could do that job better than Lukonga? And I wonder if Arsenal do. Um, whether it be Zinchenko whether it be, I think, to be honest, even Granit Xhaka, would, I'd be more comfortable with him in that position. Um, you know, can you slightly tweak the midfield so that rather than a sole pivot who's asked to do all that, um, you know, receiving the ball under pressure and defensive work, can you play with two in there? Can you put the conga in with mm. Xhaka next to him and say, sit in there with him? The question then becomes, what do you lose in other parts of the pitch? Um, mm. And so much of what's been good about Arsenal this season has been sort of increasing the attacking emphasis of the team. And Arteta will be loath to do that. Um, I do think there's kind of like, you know, Ben White's played there for Leeds. I, I think the sort of the real, if you said to me, you can see one, mm. like you've got one game to experiment. I would, I would probably put Zinchenko in there. And put Tierney left back. I mean, that's so interesting because, look, we know how comfortable Zinchenko is as a midfielder and in midfield, but he is, you know, his grounding there is further forward rather than as a as a, a deep-lying mm-hmm. uh, single pivot, if you like. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I can see how he could do it, but I do wonder maybe if the right way or a better way to do it would be Shaka. And I know like a lot of people are going to be going, you know what happens when you play Granit Shaka closer to his own goal? I get it. But needs must. And if, you know, we're in that situation, if you're in that situation, I think I would prefer Shaka deeper and Zinchenko in the, the Shaka position and you play Tierney at left back. Or you, or you keep Zinchenko at left back and, you know, he, he's helping Shaka out in that area of the pitch a lot of the time, giving him an option. Mm. I mean, and, and, you know, we're all discussing, you know, how do, uh, how does Emil Smith Rowe get back into the team? Well, maybe he could play in central midfield. I don't know. There's, there's, there are options. The problem is Arsenal haven't really got time to experiment anymore. 
Mm. It's it's pretty relentless now in the second half of the season. Every game is massive. Um, so I think only necessity will be the mother of invention in this case. Mm. I think you know, their first option is to sign someone. And that's where the emphasis is going to be between yeah. now and, and the deadline. It's, it's interesting though, yeah. It's mm. really interesting. I think... Uh, I basically think the key to Arsenal's is look, oh, there's so many keys to Arsenal's title challenge, but <laughs> one of the biggest is that midfield three, Partey, Xhaka, Odegaard. I just think that's mm. imperative that they keep those guys on the pitch. Um, what about this uh, ABRM 96? Are you guys worried about playing Everton at Goodison? Not just with a new manager bounce, but also Sean Dyche being that manager and having a full week to get them organised and ready to kick us about. Well, it is a fucking pain in the arse that we didn't get to play Frank Lampard's Everton. It is, yes. I'm annoyed by that, possibly to an unreasonable level. Um, you would have enjoyed putting the nail in the coffin, I imagine. For sure. Um, and I also think, you know, Sean Dyche is a pretty smart appointment from them because he will get them organised. Oh, it's not what they wanted to do. You know, they wanted to have Bielsa, which I think would have been pretty mad. But, yeah. I, I uh, think in the context of where they are, and oh, what they've really got to do, sensible appointment. it makes more sense than Everton, Bielsa. Yeah. Being Everton under the current ownership, they didn't want to do the sensible thing straight away. Mm. So, yeah, I'm a little bit worried about it because, you know... Um, it's that new manager bounce thing, which seems to happen to us far more than any other team. Uh, the new manager bounce or the new manager comes in just before we play them. But uh, I don't know. We should be, listen, if we want to win the league, we should we should be beating Everton. Yeah, I know. I mean, we had that, that defeat there last season as well, yeah. where they were on a fucking terrible run again. And they, We've avenged a lot of results this season. Yes, I think that's another one that we might want to avenge, to be honest. I was at that, and I'll be at this. That was a horrible, mm. horrible night, actually. Mm. That was the uh, one where <clears throat> the guy didn't get sent off for standing on Tommy Asu's face. Yeah, we were actually ahead, and then they scored two really... I mean, one was like a shot that tipped onto the bar and happened to land back on Richarlison's head. And then it was a wonder goal, wasn't it? In mm. the last minute from... Um, but I think, it didn't we uh, Didn't we also have a really good chance to make it 2-1? It could have been Eddie, yeah. yeah. That um, was the beginning of the end for Aubameyang. He came off, I think, in that game. Mm. Um, subbed off. And that was a big moment. But yeah, it was a... Uh, it's a horrible press box, Everton, as well. So small. It was like from 100 years ago when people were not my size. I genuinely can't get in and out of it. It's embarrassing. Like, <laughs> I like I have to go on the end because otherwise I, I, I'm stuck in it. It's terrible. Yeah. Um, first world problem right there. That is a first world problem. But, I mean, honestly, it's awful. Like, I don't know how James Ollie, who's like six foot six or something, does it. It's right. crazy. Maybe he sits um, on the other end. That could be. It. Yeah, that's it. That's it. But, um... Yeah, we should be them. Yeah, I, I know Sean Dyche is Sean Dyche, and he is a good appointment. And maybe they'll do something in the window. I don't know. Mm. But um, well, so far they've just sold their best player, haven't they, to Newcastle? So have they? 
Anthony Gordon. Is he yeah. their best player? Well, if it's not him, I don't know who it is. Like, they've been dismal this season. They've they have been really been. poor. I mean, um, I was astonished. I guess Jordan Pickford's probably their best player, genuinely, yeah. but, I, you know... I, I mean, don't know. Didn't Chelsea bid like sixty million for him in the summer, and they didn't sell? Gordon, Anthony Gordon, yeah. It was in that range. I don't know what they bid. They've sold him for like forty-five now, I think. Right. So they've taken a hit of fifteen million, and what, what's he scored this season? And Three I think goals? they've done that so that they, because they're in a perilous financial position, and they are trying to strengthen in the window, but mm. they've sold. Definitely one of their best players. They also had the sort of Danuma humiliation. I mean, I know you say you don't believe things until the player's holding up the shirt. Danuma literally was holding up the shirt. He did all the media and photographs to sign for Everton and then Spurs called and he abandoned them. Well, you know what the... Uh, and I'm sure uh, Stuart and, and Pricey wouldn't make this mistake. You know, you don't take the pictures until the fucking thing is signed. Yeah, or at least if you are taking the pictures, you lock the door. Yeah, exactly. Take his phone away yeah. from him. Uh, sign that contract. You're here. You're you're gonna not going to move. Actually, we had a question about um, an Everton player uh, from okay. Singapore, Gunnar, who says, with all the talk of midfielders, would you take Alex Awobi back as the potential heir to Xhaka in the number eight role? Ticks a lot of uh, lots of Arteta's boxes. Versatile, technically secure, physical, coming into his prime. Loves the club and will probably come cheap considering Everton's situation at the moment. I love Awobi. I think he was a little bit uh, underrated and I think he's done well as a central player at Everton, but I don't think we should be taking him back. No. Happy for him that, you know, his personal form has improved, but um, I'm not sure it would be a, a forward step. Hmm. would be interesting to see if... Um... If Sean Dyche keeps using him in midfield. Yeah, and, and if Everton um, were to go down, which has never happened in the history of the Premier League, it'd be interesting to see what, what became of him. But, mm. um, he's definitely got attributes that are really handy. Uh, like he's a good ball carrier, good ball progressor. He just doesn't quite have the sort of final third element to his game. Mm. And I feel like... I don't know, Arsenal might want a bit more incision um, yeah. in a sort of central midfield edition. Um, well, listen, this is mad. <laughs> okay. So we've got this question, and, and it's, I do think it's astonishing that and tells you how big a part the chance window plays in sort of dominating narrative. We've got this rise of the podcast, not mentioned it. John Hussain on the Discord, Martinelli's New Deal seems to have gone under the radar. Is that more important than a signing? It is extraordinary. Like There was such anxiety around the three contracts of Martinelli, Saka and Saliba. And, mm. you know, David uh, broke the story of effectively it being agreed, a four, four and a half year deal. It's really flown under the radar. I think so. I think so. You're right. I mean, obviously there was the game. Um, it came out not like an hour before the game, something yeah, like that. Something so like that. it sort of got lost in, in and that. And the Caicedo as well. But. Yeah, and the Caicedo stuff and the end of the window stuff. But yeah, it is a great development, I think. And hopefully, you know, dominoes start to fall in that sense in the um, 
in the in the contract talks with Bakayo Saka, William Saliba. We've already tied down Gabriel, um, getting Martinelli down to a new deal, which I think is more commensurate with his importance and his influence uh, on the team. Uh, has been has been uh, one of the things that Edu and and the club have had to do. Um, so fair play, they've got it done. Not official yet. Won't won't uh, won't get too excited till I see him hold up. The picture of Thomas Partey, uh, holding up a picture of Thomas Partey, saying I'm fine, and also in that picture is Martinelli's contract. So until we see that, you know, I'll, I'll keep my powder dry. But no, it is it is great news, isn't it? And um, I hope they can get the others done quickly too. Yeah, I mean, his would have been, to be fair, the more straightforward of those three. Uh, he just needed a pen. They finally just a pen, and finally. Finally. Finally, someone has dug out an old Bic Biro from the back of the sofa at Highbury House, and uh, they've got him. They've it's got great him. news, actually. Mm. And I guess the nice thing is, you know, there will be at some point be an official confirmation from the club, and hopefully that comes after the window when it can get the attention and the focus it deserves. Mm. Um, and I do think that even once the window closes, if Arsenal can close contracts with... Saka and Saliba, those could just be little injections of positivity at crucial points in the yeah. season. Um, I, I don't mean to suggest they're being deliberately held back for that. I think if, they, no, no, no. if the deals were signed, we would know. But um, yeah, I, I, fingers crossed, fingers crossed. All right. Here's one from Aranidas on the Discord. He said, goodly morning. Are you as tired of the Pep clone... Pep disciple discourse around Arteta as I am. It's slightly wearing, but I, I don't know if you can quite get away from it. I mean, it is an extraordinary story. This guy who grew up admiring Guardiola as the footballer in the position he wanted to play at the club he was coming through at in Barcelona, who retired from playing and went to work alongside him as his assistant, experienced great success and triumphs, you know, as his protégé. And now The Apprentice is rivaling the sorcerer for the biggest prize in English football. I understand that people might be weary of it, but it's also a truly remarkable story. And I get why it's become such a, a central narrative, you know? Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see that press conference the other day? Did you see that bit? Um I didn't see that bit. I saw bits and pieces. Let, of it. let me what, just when let, did you say that? Let me just play this clip to you, right? Hang on. Barcelona are this sort of the new team challenging. Do you think the criticism from some of his behaviour is because sort of Arsenal are the sort of the new team challenging and so there's a little bit of not jealousy but you know Jurgen Klopp for example does it? Absolutely. <laughs> and he just sort of leaned into the microphone and went absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah you know look I get it. I, I, I know exactly what you're saying but let's imagine that I tuck you up in bed every night and I read you Jack and the Beanstalk. And okay, yeah, every I night I read you Jack and the Beanstalk. 
Yeah. And at some point, you're going to say, one, get out of my bedroom. What are you doing here? But also, I would like a different story. Mm-hmm. I, I think the like every time they're mentioned, you get the same story, the same kind of interview and everything else. But I get it. I get it as well. You know, it's an easy one to uh, to write a lot of copy on because – you know all the all the things that you mentioned, and the fact that like these two guys are now battling it out at, at the top of the Premier League. Um, the story is very slightly different now from when, for example, it was Guardiola defending Arteta to say, "No, he's he's actually good. He is a good coach. Uh, yeah. I promise you." And everyone's going, "Well, yeah, you would say that, Pep, because you've just beaten his Arsenal team pretty easily. So why wouldn't you want him to continue?" But um, you know, it, it's different now, but it must at, be weird at some that. point. Do you think? Being asked about it all the time or the fact that it is happening or, you know, this 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 rivalry, if you want to call it that, has developed. Do you think that's if weird? We, I don't know. Like, if we take Pep at face value about how highly he rates Arteta, then he must have sort of seen this coming, potentially. Mm-hmm. But I, I just think on a human level, I don't think it must make it any less odd. Like, for your junior sort of employee, it'd be like if I uh, if I rivaled you in the podcasting charts, Andrew. But <laughs> if I started my own Arsenal podcast. Right. Um, there aren't enough of them out there. So, yeah, you know, it's true. The there's a gap in the market for you. I, I just think it must be – I don't know. I just think psychologically – you know, that sort of psychological – there's always a bit of a psychological battle between the managers and the title race, right? Mm. It goes all the way back and it's always been there. I just think it's a particularly unusual dynamic for them to have had all this history and this relationship. It is. know each other yeah. so well. I mean, I'm quite curious to see how it plays out, you know, because Guardiola is very experienced – he has his moments, doesn't he? You know, when he's not happy, like any manager, he has his moments. Um, I just think there's there's so much respect between the two of them that I don't think he would react to Mikel Arteta or Arteta would react to him in the same way. Like, I don't expect to see a, Guardi- a Guardiola-Arteta thing like the Arteta-Klopp thing. You know what I mean? I just think that foundation that they have makes that kind of stuff impossible. Not impossible, but very unlikely. I did like the quote about Arteta, you know, not celebrating against Arsenal and Guardiola looking at him on the bench every time, you know, as they went three or four nil up and just sort of sat there glumly. And there are indeed some clips around (laughs) that people have dug out of, you know, City battering Arsenal and Arteta not really getting involved with the celebrations. Mm. Yeah, I like that little uh, detail and that thing of like this guy, he likes Arsenal. It is actually really interesting as well, like the degree to which Arteta affiliated himself with Arsenal. You know, given that he played for some other really big clubs, like he was at Barcelona for a period, he played for Rangers who are like, you know, I think unless you've been up there, you don't really get the sense of how big an institution that is. Um, Played for PSG in France he came to Arsenal when he was over 30, but like it is in him so deeply. I think. Mm. 
No, he connected with the club in a big way. I think it was 29, actually, when he came. So he, right. he, he did connect with the club in a big way. And we've spoken about it before, how that, that trolley dash, the end of that season, you know, for two of the guys who, who really did come in and help steady the ship, Per Mertesacker and, and Mikel Arteta, for those two guys to be where they are right now, is kind of amazing too. That's another story, perhaps, um, you know, for those two guys to be as influential and to hold the positions they hold at this football club, considering the circumstances in which they arrived as well. So um, We'd better do this question, Andrew, because I said in part one we'd talk about it and we haven't. Oh, okay. So uh, Levi Mark says, Audly fashioned mornings, sirs. Um, <laughs> how worrying is the Smith Rowe situation? For me, it is very much so. <laughs> very, very um, worrying indeed. I'm tremendously concerned about the whole uh, um, Is it worrying? Look, I think when a player is out for a long period of time and they have surgery and they're making their way back, I don't think it's in any way unusual that they pick up a few little aches and strains along the way. I think the, the he had a little bit of a thigh problem. It wasn't some anything to do with the groin or the surgery. I think those kinds of injuries are fairly common. So I'm not that worried at this moment in time. But, you know, the second half of the season, I mean, this I think this is probably a discussion to have in May when the season has played out and we can then assess how much of an impact Emile Smith-Rowe has had and how fit he has been and how available he's been. So I don't worry too much about a little ache or niggle, you know, when a player... Um, has been out because they just happen, you know? It's about what he can do between now and May. So I'm not that worried right now. What about you? Uh, I'm not worried. I'm more disappointed for Emil and for me because I wanted to see him play, you know, for and I'm you, sure yeah, he yeah. wanted to play. Uh, he wanted to play for you in particular. Yeah, uh, yeah apparently. Um, and, and also, I just, uh, you know, this was, I just don't necessarily see how... I mean, touch wood. All being well, he won't have great opportunity to sort of great get generate much rhythm in this season. Um, and I think that these sort of comeback games are, are, are going to be really would have been really valuable to him. Mm. So for him to miss that one, where I think he probably might have started or at least played a decent chunk, is a shame. Mm. Um, but I don't think a setback you know, while you're coming back from a, a lengthy absence due to surgery is particularly surprising. No. All right, let's do this final one then. It comes from Sean D. Gooner on the Discord. He said, at the end of the game on Friday, there there appeared to be a bit of aggro between Zinke and one of the City players. There was more than one of them. Uh, was it just banter or was it for real? I haven't got a clue, Andrew. So, I found that so strange. <laughs> Uh, what did you think? I thought it was really kind of weird. It was weird. Right? I know there's a sort of boys will be boys and like... Footballers are weird, right? Like, footballers are quite weird. Yes. Like, dressing room dynamics are really strange. They are sort of horrible to each other and it's banter. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. I'm only messing with you. Ah, yeah, 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 and that is actually the culture in a lot of football clubs. But, but I, even so, mm, I found this odd. Like he wasn't in the mood for it. I think it's fair to say he might have mellowed out a bit in the end. 
from yeah, the he from was the in bit? a bad mood at full time, wasn't he? Like I think I think almost as the full time whistle went, he mm. he'd been booked shortly before. He actually he was, nearly got like came close yeah. to getting booked again. Yeah. So like he slightly lost his rag mm. because he was at his former club and he didn't want to lose. He's very I think, you know, we've learned about him. He's very motivated, very... Very competitive. Proud, yeah. Um, and... But if you've not seen it, what happens is, like, Carl Walker and a few other City players sort of come over to him and they kind of, like, belittle him a bit. Like, they sort of try to give him a hug and effectively pat him on the head. I can't remember if they sort of literally yeah. pat him on the head, but it's very much that vibe. Mm. And Zinchenko's not in the mood for it at all. And he sort of gets caught between sort of trying to have a laugh with them, but also making it very clear that could they please take their hands off him sort mm. of thing. Yeah. I, Big brother picking on little brother kind of vibe yes. to it. And I guess it is a sort of boys will be boys type scenario but it will be interesting <laughs> to see Zinchenko play against Man City from the start and mm. uh, you know he, he might need a, uh, a word quite word before the match so we don't have a, a Rob Holding situation on our hands you know in terms of <laughs> just keeping a lid on it because he looked to be very fired up for this contest uh, sure at, with his former club. Well, all's well that ends well. Yeah. I they were happy shirts with someone with Walker in the end or something. Yeah. I mean, I mean it I, could be just an in joke as well, but listen, you know, we extrapolate, don't we? We are. That's this, what we do. We've extrapolated the bollocks out of it in this. But, but, but I, I literally, I sent a clip of it to someone saying, I know footballers are weird, but this seems especially weird. <laughs> Even by the standards of footballers. Yeah. All right. Well, look. I think we, um, I think we better leave it there because you know the whole of Sunday lies ahead of us. We are still pastryless. I know. It's outrageous. It, it really is. Um, so maybe I'll go and get a, a pastry after after I get this podcast up. We um, we have Everton, of course, coming up at the weekend. We'll talk about that in midweek as well as ever. Thank you very much indeed for being here. Thank you for listening and for all the support over on Patreon. You can sign up if you like, patreon.com forward slash arseblog. We'll have some stuff for you midweek as well over there um, before an arsecast on Friday. So until then, take it easy, folks. Bye-bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.